got called survivalists at one point, which we didn't know what it was, but I guess we figured we're doing like the bare minimum to survive. And you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, isn't that the ideal? Like, shouldn't everybody be just doing that? You know, like just, just living? Welcome to Through Here, a podcast about road trips, people, and places. Here is recorded on Treaty 2 territory. The land is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Ochi Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Metis Nation. The land is used by Indigenous nations from Treaties 1, 3, and 4. Today you get to hear all about Patrick. He's a bit of a local celebrity in Riding Mountain National Park. He might deny that, but I see what happens when he walks down the street in the height of the summer season. We sat down with him in a boring office, but then later around a fire, to talk about why he chose to live near the park, how he got to be a Parks Canada interpreter, and how him and his partner Sherry built a house out of straw. Yes, you heard that right. What leads someone to not only live in, but also build a house of straw? Listen along as we find out. about Riding Mountain National Park and surrounding areas this episode as Patrick recounts his early days in the park. My name's Patrick McDermott and I've lived in the Riding Mountain area for 21 years and my wife and I moved to the area because we felt that uh, like living in the biosphere of our national park it was uh, it aligned with who we were and our, our values, and we just think it's beautiful. My wife worked here way back in the day before TR's was TR's, and her parents owned that uh, restaurant. She knew that the area was beautiful and convinced me of the same, and after a visit, I um, agreed, and we moved here in 1997. And we, how can I put this, we camped for a couple of summers. <laughs> and found some uh, local homes we could rent in during the, the winter. And then uh, by about, oh, I think it was about 99. And 98, 99 was when we decided that we were going to build a straw house. It still was something that aligned with our values to have kind of like a, a small uh, environmental footprint using you know, what's considered a waste material. And it seemed pretty user-friendly to build. And we thought maybe we could get some friends to help. And we built a small house. It's only about 650 square feet. So that, again, we'd have a small footprint on about a third of an acre. So we have a big yard, very small house. And we like it. It does everything that we need it to do, keep mm -hmm. us warm in the winter and cool in the summer. We have a little wood stove in there, so that keeps us nice and toasty. And, you know, high-speed internet <laughs> and all the other things you need. Like, I mean, I joke that it's a hut because mm -hmm. it's pretty rudimentary, but it, it's got everything that we need. Uh, okay, so do you want to talk more about what you mean by camping? <laughs> 
Uh, sure. Yeah, well, much to the chagrin of the local residents, uh, when we first moved to the area, we camped in a van for the summer. That would be summer 97. And then we found somewhere to stay in winter 97, 98, local house we rented. That was within our budget. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine. We were on a pretty tight budget. And then, uh, so for summer 98, we camped in, in the uh, van again. And then found different accommodations. I think it was at Ditch Lake for winter 98, 99. And summer 99. I think we stayed in that place in Ditch Lake right through 99. Ditch Lake is in between the small towns of Onanal, which sits right on the Riding Mountain border, and Erickson, a town about 20 minutes away. A lot of people have cabins located there as it's close to the beauty of Riding Mountain and a little bit away from the tourists. Because we were making some good progress on the house, and then we moved into the straw house, winter 99, like close to New Year's Eve, if I'm not uh, mistaken, around Christmas, New Year's Eve. And from what I remember, it was bizarrely warm. And when we moved in, we were like maybe overestimating like the straw bales because it was so warm outside. And so when we got in there, we were like, oh my God, it's so cozy. <laughs> like, and it is, like don't get me wrong. But you know, when the temperature hits like minus 25 outside and colder, that's when we're kind of like, okay, like we got to stoke up the fire here and uh, make something happen. Yeah, so that's kind of how that right. happened. We just sort of were like straggling from outside to whatever we could find and afford <laughs> over the 97 to 2000 period. So you were like a regional van lifer. Is van life uh, a, a thing thing-y. right now? Yeah. Yeah, except that <laughs> this van, like we got it on a, we got it registered temporarily just to get our belongings from Winnipeg to Onanol. And so when we parked it, our property that we bought with nothing, there was nothing there. The fence, we drove it to the fence. One very windy and rainy May day, as they can be, and parked it, and that was it for like, till whenever we got it out of there, which would have been around 2000, I guess. So it just stayed there, you know, on an angle, because we live kind of on a hillside, right? Mm -hmm. We stayed in there with our two dogs, very big dogs, Akitas. <laughs> and they would of course stay inside the van because that's how Sherry wanted it. Mm -hmm. But it's good too because like one night we heard some crunching outside and like we looked outside and there was a skunk eating the kibble in the dish. And so it was a good thing the dogs weren't outside because <laughs> they don't seem to care about the smell thing. Like they'll just kind of yeah. go for it. <laughs> you know, it's, the chase is on type of thing. <laughs> What did you do when you first came here for work and For work? Stuff? Um, well, before we'd arrived, actually, my wife was pretty astute and met with the golf course owners and had secured some work for us before we made the move. So we worked at the Lawn Bowling Green in Clear Lake. You may be wondering, what the heck? There's an actual place you can go that has a built-in lawn bowling green? The answer to that is yes. I tried to find out more information for you, but was kind of unsuccessful on that front. You can visit them on Facebook by searching Clear Lake Bowling Greens, and I definitely encourage you to check it out and play a game the next time you're in Riding Mountain. Which was not a high-paying gig. We were working for the golf course at the Bowling Green and it was real sleepy but a real picturesque spot. 
So it was kind of like having a cabin on the lake. So we'd have our van, we'd move to go to sleep. But in the daytime, we worked at the Bowling Green, which is, you might know, it's like only a block off of the water. Mm-hmm. So we'd set people up with their uh, lawn bowls and mm-hmm. teach them how to play. So I'd go out for couples and groups and families and whatever and show them how to play the game. And then sometimes it would get too hot and just nobody would be there because of the bowling green like it had zero shade so then we just close up shop and go for a swim or have a snack or whatever mm-hmm. and hang out at our cabin quote unquote <laughs> uh but we had other jobs like at the same time i was the breakfast cook at the golf course so at like 6 30 in the morning i'd be working at the golf course cooking breakfast for busy golfers and then i'd bike back to the bowling green and sort of uh, support sherry there because she'd be she'd have opened that at whatever it opened now like 10 or something like that so i'd be there by like you know 2 3 and sort of give her a break and take over and then we'd close that by like whatever it was uh, i think around seven or something like that or eight maybe even and so we close that up and then we'd have to fill some giant water jugs to haul back to the uh, to our property because there was no water there yet, obviously. So that was kind of like our routine for two summers in a row. I eventually got a job at the Elkhorn washing dishes because you need winter work, right? So because they were affiliated at the, the time, I got a job washing dishes at the Elkhorn and eventually worked my way up to like line cook. And at one point was doing breakfast there too. It's all a bit of a blur, but uh, mm-hmm. kind of honed my chops uh, cooking at between the, the golf course and the Elkhorn. How did you decide that you were going to need a house out of Sprawl? It was kind of a funny thing. Like, we have some great neighbors, the Allards, George and Carol, and we didn't have the internet at the time, okay? Mm-hmm. So we were just sort of planning on building some kind of small house. And then at one, one day, George was walking by and he said, you know, I've heard of people building houses out of straw. You should try that. And as soon as he said that, we were just like, hook and thought this was amazing and and between all these sort of contacts we had because we couldn't just google it we got a little bit of information on this and that and and worked with a contractor to uh, develop the plans and come up with the concept something really small with like a a shed pitched roof and a pole barn wood frame and a concrete slab like just the rudiments of a structure right and then we infilled it with straw so George kind of gave us the idea and then we got rabbit about it after that and just sort of threw together the simplest concept and then went through with it with the help of uh, contractors and like an engineer to get the stamp plans because I'd be working in the day she had multiple meetings with the RM the rural municipality Mm -hmm. office to get them to approve it and they were just scrutinizing everything and it probably helps that a lot of them were farmers because I think they could sort of see that that was something that made sense but for sure it was scrutinized pretty uh, pretty closely and it was approved. I think the building inspector at the time said that it's a good thing we live in uh, what he called a progressive neighborhood because there was like uh, <laughs> You know, some park staff uh, up the hill from us, and they were open to the idea. And, you know, one of them had an R2000 house, and they had the same sort of values as us as far as, like, having a a small ecological footprint. And so we didn't uh, raise too many eyebrows in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's an R2000. I don't exactly know what R2000 stands for. But apparently it is like a style of building where it is uh, 
Like net zero? Net zero. It's kind of like what they call net zero what nowadays, you know, like the windows are like triple pane argon filled and uh, okay. it's got a super like top of the line HVAC system, like heating, ventilation, mm-hmm. air conditioning, and they have a little wood stove. and. Hmm. But what is an R2000 house? I did some research for you because Patrick and I never came to a conclusion on what it is. It seems like it's a certification level you can achieve, sort of like how businesses get LEED certification. An R2000 home should have high insulation levels, high efficiency windows and doors, high efficiency heating, minimal air leaking from the house, and water conserving fixtures like taps and shower heads. They had a composting toilet, like a clevis composting toilet, which we thought was amazing, so we got one. Mm-hmm. Ours was very different. It was a self-contained one. So we had some issues with that, and we uh, feel like we took a little bit of a step backwards and put in a regular toilet that uh, you know flushes into a holding tank. Mm-hmm. So that was too bad. I still got that toilet, though. I'm like hoping to like build some kind of like eco-outhouse in our yard that we use in the summer. I don't think Sherry's too keen on that, but um, one can dream of building an outhouse. <laughs> really? Shoot for the stars. Okay, so people helped you like come up with the concept, or was it mostly you guys? Well, for the concept, as far as the plan, the design, like that was mostly us. It's a long time ago, but we were mainly going to have an open floor plan just because you know it was so small. You know, it was just us, so just to have you know the kitchen visible from the bedroom and vice versa was like we were like okay, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, that. That's no big deal. The bathroom was a little bit more of like a where we thought we should have some privacy <laughs> so eventually we did wall in the bathroom and actually uh, another bedroom because in 2001 was when our daughter was born so that was before we had running water so that was a bit of a challenge <laughs> so we figured we should get the ball rolling on the running water mm-hmm. as well because of a baby and stuff <laughs> and diapers we use reusable diapers, so you gotta wash those things. Yeah. So we got some water in there. That was great. All we had was like one tap with the cold water straight out of the ground, and then we eventually set up our kitchen so that we could have, you know, hot and cold running water, which was great. Concept. Yeah, real concept. <laughs> it's funny too because we live in an area where there's like pretty big cabins, mm-hmm. like pretty ostentatious cabins, mansions, even one might call them. Yeah, one might. And so for us to be like cobbling together this straw hut with like <laughs> one tap of cold water, we got called survivalists at one point, which we didn't know what it was, but I guess we figured we're doing like the bare minimum to survive. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, isn't that the ideal? Like, shouldn't everybody be just doing that? You know, like just, just living, you know, like, we have some luxuries in our lives now. I get it now. But we're still living like pretty simply. Mm-hmm. So why, is, why was it slash is it important to live like that? Where do you think that that value came from? Just out of not really wanting or needing too much. To have a small impact on the area in which we live. Meaning, like, in, in macrocosm, having a smaller impact on the world. And taking something that was considered a waste product and using it in a constructive way 
was also something that uh, it really sparked us off as far as thinking that that was, you know, a, a way that maybe more people should live. You know, we explored other possibilities, like um, we have some uh, people live in the area, live in a uh, log and mortar home, like, so they have cordwood, cordwood walls. So if you think of how firewood is stacked, but if you took like mortar and mortared between all the logs, like that is how their first house was built. I guess that was a, another thing that inspired us. Looking at how creative people we admired were using, you know, unconventional building techniques to have a minimal impact on your immediate environment and, and the world ultimately was uh, just things that aligned with our values. Where did those values come from? Good like, question. Separate from the house, like just in general, overall. Good question. I'm not sure, I guess. I grew up in a pretty big family. And I mean, my dad had a good job, but like we had eight kids in the family. So like we lived pretty simply. Like, when we went camping, it was in tents at first. Okay. Mm -hmm. And our family outings were always like to Birds Hill Park, or maybe we went to the White Shell. And then like in, in the city, it was always real simple stuff to like skating or tobogganing. Like we, we never really got into sports, for example, that were like involved a lot of equipment like uh, skis or snowboards or uh, hockey gear, for example. It was just basically, what do you have? Let's go out and do it. Like I got into soccer, you need like shoes and a ball, you know? And eventually I did get into cross country skiing. And as far as like, gear, that's kind of on the lower end. Uh, you, you can get by with some pretty simple gear in that one. So anyway, all I'm saying is that, yeah, I just guess I grew up pretty simply. And then whenever I, I moved out, like I, I felt like I didn't really need much to be happy if I had like uh, a guitar and a warm place to live and uh, something to eat. <laughs> what else is there, you know? Mm -hmm. Are your siblings like that? Uh, everybody's pretty environmentally conscious. And I mean, I don't think anybody lives beyond their means type of thing. Nobody did anything as, as crazy as, as building a straw bale house. Yeah, everybody's living pretty simply. Mm -hmm. I'm probably the one that went the furthest out there, <laughs> so to speak. How has raising a daughter been with that mentality? Obviously, she was also raised in a straw house, <laughs> which is a little unconventional. I don't think she noticed anything like real crazy right. growing up because that's everything that she knew. Mm -hmm. And then we made the mistake of letting her go to other kids' houses. <laughs> and then she got to see what a normal, quote-unquote, house mm -hmm. looks like. And I think to her, maybe it, it seemed like a lot easier. Because we had some, I don't know, like, like we, we live pretty simply. And that means, you know, like we're not splurging on the latest and the greatest. So sometimes, like, if you had a certain thing you wanted to work, you had to sort of, like, tap it on the side and jiggle the handle. You know what I mean? Like, that's mm -hmm. sort of how she grew up. And then she'd go to somebody's house where it's like, you don't have to tap it on the side and jiggle the handle for this thing to work. Mm -hmm. And it also has this feature. So I think once we let her taste the fruit of knowledge, <laughs> so to speak, I think she started to realize like maybe she has a little bit of like a weird upbringing. <laughs> Full disclosure, we have a house in Brandon now because she goes to school in Brandon and it is a normal house. And... She likes that house, but she's 17 and, you know, like life might be challenging for a grade 12, 17 year old. So she doesn't want to have to bang on the side of the thing and jiggle the handle anymore. She just wants the thing to work so she can go about her life mm -hmm. and go to school. 
So what I'm hoping for is that raising her in a place where she first was raised, where we only had cold running water and had to heat the water, and then open floor plans, so like there's kind of like a no secrets type of thing. Mm-hmm. From, from that to where she is, I'm hoping that she remembers that, that you don't need much to live and get by. And a lot of people do. They sort of remember where they're from, and they'll, that's always hopefully holding good memories for them. And that in kind of a weird roundabout way, after they've learned about life and love and whatever, that they eventually yearn or get nostalgic for that time when they were a kid, and they maybe want to return to those times, those feelings and experiences. And so that's kind of like the seeds that I felt like I sowed, whether she comes back to them or Mm -hmm. not. It's really up to her, but that was the best that we could do to show her that in the beginning, like you became an adult with not very much, came into your own with not very much at your disposal. Just remember that and um, life's not going to be too complicated for you. Mm -hmm. The first part of this interview took place in a quiet office building. Kind of boring if you ask me. Um, But later in the day I stopped by Patrick's house to take some photos and we ended up chatting for quite a while by a fire in his front yard. We chatted about life and houses and lawns and living in Riding Mountain. You don't have a yard, which is actually kind of cool. Well, we have just like you don't have a lawn. Is Aspen Parkland. Like, yeah. Like, we, we're like our house is literally just like inserted into the Aspen Parkland. Yeah, which is weird because I was like, wait, there's something weird about this. Not weird, but like you know, not the norm because weird isn't necessarily bad. And first, I was like, it's that there's like a. Looks like a security compound. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the woman that uh, had bought this property at some point in the early 90s had dogs, and they were some kind of sled dogs. She was coming from the Northwest Territories. Whoa. Yeah, flying them here. Her plane crashed. They all died. And then the next of kin what? sold the property, uh, and we had like, to... Like, all the dogs died and she did? Yeah. I don't know how many she had, but... The dogs died, she died, the next of kin had to sell this, that we bought it for like seven grand. This empty lot with a fence around it. Like the fence is probably worth more than seven grand, you know what I mean? So I think they just wanted to like deal with it, so we bought it. We had two Akitas, which are kind of a husky, like a Japanese husky Yeah, I have a friend that breeds them. And we thought, like the property was so cheap. It had a fence, she had dogs, it was like, duh. And I mean, look around, like the view here. There were no houses. All those houses you see there are new. Those houses you see there, new. This one, new. All those ones, new. The only houses that were here were the Allards, which was like three lots over. And then the Krausens, which is way up on the top of the hill, Buzz and Bev Krausen. Buzz helped out on Dark Sky. But two houses over from him, Devars, they were there. That's the R2000 house. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, Jill and Abby, Noel, own it now in the Airbnb. And there's one kind of between them. It used to be Bob and, um, Joan. Bob and Joan Rogers. They're gone now. But then uh, there was one more between them. I can't remember who owns that. But anyway, there was like four houses on this entire loop. We bought and built while they were uh, 
at that point, and then all these ones that you see. You should drive around the loop on your way out, because this is just a big loop. It brings you back to Barclay Drive, and you can just cut back that way. There's one directly across here, and it looks like kind of like a Grey Owl's Cabin vibe. Logs, they're Aspen logs. The, the guy made it himself. He built like a big gantry in the middle of the house and like just hauled up all the logs and like pushed them into place like one person using kind of a homemade gantry off of a pole. And it has like the traditional Riding Mountain Fieldstone type of fireplace. It's really beautiful and it's real small. And I think it just suits this area like to a T. And then you'll see a few houses beside it that are like, okay, like those are a little more modern with the vinyl siding. Or yeah, like that one there, over there looks so modern. Yeah, it is very modern. It's got a very a real gallery feel. I've never been inside, but like that's where the compound fell. You can get onto it from there. So sometimes I've seen it in the windows. And he's got like big pieces of art on the wall. And pretty cool guy. I think he's a lawyer from Toronto. Will Hector is his name. Will and Linda. And it's pretty cool. It's got uh, shakes. You can't see it from here, but it's got cedar shakes that are kind of stained or painted gray or whatever. But yeah, it has a very modern vibe to it. What the heck is Aspen Parkland? I'm gonna tell you because it fascinates me and you kind of need to be able to picture what he's talking about. If you don't care about trees, you might want to skip 15 seconds ahead. If you do, I'm about to nerd out with you. According to Nature Conservancy Canada, the Aspen Parkland represents the most extensive boreal grassland transition area in the world. This ecoregion transitions between the boreal forest to the north and the grasslands to the south. It features trembling aspen, oak tree groves, mixed tall shrubs, and intermittent fescue grasslands. The area that Patrick lives is a valley and looks like it was once sprawling natural prairie mixed with aspen parkland. What we're talking about now, which may or may not be interesting to you, is the amount of matching-like cabins that have popped up around him since he's built the straw house. That kid house looks so tiny. Oh yeah, the kid house, yeah. Like the it pictures small, of yeah. it on the internet make it look way bigger. You know, I think it's got everything you need. It's got the same vibe as ours, like a common dining and living and kitchen in the front, and on the back, bathroom and bedroom, you mm -hmm. know? That's basically what ours is, yeah. like the bare minimum. And you have the same thing that the Doyle's house has, the roof style. Where it's oh like yeah, this. model pitch. Patrick's house isn't a regular house. I mean, we know this because by now you know it's made of straw, but it doesn't have the same type of roof that we normally see on houses. It isn't peaked, but rather rises up on an angle. You can see what it looks like on through here at pod.com. It's really worth it to open your phone right now and head to through here pod.com. And I'm not just saying that. Um, you can look at this house as Patrick is describing it. He's being pretty in-depth with the descriptions, but the visuals really add to the coolness factor of the house. What did you picture a straw house looking like? Probably not that, I can tell you that much. Than well, you don't. The normal. Well, the thing is with ours, like to have because we want an open floor plan, we didn't have any load bearing walls inside, so we bought 
what's called engineered I-beam that could make a span of whatever it is, 23 feet or something like that without having a supporting wall okay. in between. I suppose we could have bought engineered crosses that could cover that big of a span, but when we talked to the engineer, they said, well, this is kind of like your easiest and cheapest bet is to just buy this 23 foot engineered I-beam and just have a mono pitch if you want an open floor plan. We thought we can build partition walls at some point. Mm -hmm. yeah. just with the simplest solution. And you wouldn't have to worry about any gabling or whatever, you know, like trusses, I should say, like mm -hmm. to make it the traditional picture of a house that a kid draws <laughs> with the triangle peak. Yeah. No, it's, it's a pole barn is what it is. Just a big pole barn. Four poles on the front, four along the back, one on either side, and then big beams. And then I-beams sitting on top of those. I don't know what people picture a straw house to be, but... Well, People, Probably we, not that. We helped on one when we were first setting out on this. We found out somehow about a straw bale house work building workshop. And essentially that's just <laughs> like, you help people build their house is what it is. <laughs> but they were pretty good about it. Like they had a guy from Saskatchewan and it was called Huff and Puff Builders or something like that. <laughs> oh my God. I know, kind of silly. But he was from Saskatchewan and he was uh, this old dude that had helped already on a few straw bale houses. And, uh, kind of walk people through like how they were doing it and they had a real high big wall like what we had and we were like wouldn't they just sort of tip because mm -hmm. like you make a huge such a huge wall high wall and he said well we're going to build this against timber frame what you do is you sandwich the bales in last kind of like an inch square mesh okay okay yeah so you've got the bales but we've already made like a last cage around the poles Mm -hmm. You put the bales, you stack them, then you, on the outside you put last, but then we use what's called a bale needle, like a giant sewing needle, but the eye is in the point. So you poke the bale needle through the wall with the baling twine on it, poke it through. The other person on the other side undoes it from the, the eye, hooks it around the last, which is nailed to the frame, right? Hooks it around the last, they loop it back around into yeah, the so you're needle. That person sewing the bale into Exactly. The so the person pulls the needle out and they tie it and they snug oh it up. So you've made like a giant quilt. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a straw quilt surrounding your house. Yeah. So you pull it out and then we just go over all that. So that guy showed us how to how to do that. And kind of a weird twist of fate, one of the guys helping to build, because it was his sister's house in Steinbeck, one of the guys helping build is actually the partner of the person who owns Lady of the Lake. Anyway, that's the first time we ever met Wes, and then we moved back here, and it was like, oh, you, the guy that helped build the straw bale house, like we did, and we did it here, you know? It's also wild that you don't have a front lawn. Like, yeah. you never when really when I see people with grass and lawns, and I'm just kind of like, yeah. that is a little bit sort of incongruous. Is that the word? Incongruous with the, the land landscape because I mean look around this is almost pristine Aspen Park right? like I've gone exploring yeah. this meadow before all these houses there's like skulls and bones and remnants of the old farm because this entire section used to be belonging to a guy named Buster Swenson whose house and portable sawmill was right on the park line and he would like mill trees that were harvested from the park Mm -hmm. I think he's one of those Scandinavian woodsmen, basically, mm -hmm. that lived here back in the day, and this was all his farmland. And that's Sherry's great uncle, Buster Swenson. Swenson Drive is named after him. You drive out towards the park, there's like one house right on the park line where they cut all those trees out. That's his old house, and that's Sherry's great uncle. And so this whole area was his. So it's kind of like a real family connection for her this area yeah. and actually his old portable sawmill was in a shed that they auctioned off when he passed away we bought it 
we had it load here, but then at one point, like, we just, it was just too much to deal with. We just dismantled it and used all this old Rocky Mountain milled lumber to, like, put in paneling in our sunroom and in the bathroom. There's, like, all that wood sort of all throughout our house. We got to kind of reclaim that uh, little bit of family history yeah. and uh, use it. Oh, that's cool. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's all fur, lumber, siding, and paneling. It was all like either shiplap, like the overlap style, or tongue and groove. Shapes are off the alloy roof. They replaced the roof with the metal. George was like, "You want some shapes? Yeah. Make great kindling." I said, "Yeah." Also, they'll make great siding for my uh, sunroof. So I just tacked them up. Yeah, there. now it looks cooler. Yeah, it sort of adds a new texture, you know, to the outside. It sort of like breaks up that sort of gray of the stucco. Now it's still gray, but it's just like a neat. Uh, Extra contrast, you know. It does look like a fort. It looks like the highest class fort that has ever existed. Yeah, well, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. So when you build a fort, it's just like you're basically looking for some kind of basic shelter, like this sort of like separation between you and the elements, right? Like that's yeah. basically what you're doing when you build a house, right? You're just building some kind of I like mean, sanctuary. Like place, no one know? does that anymore, but yeah. Yeah, but like I mean, we, we barely knew how to swing a hammer before we started building mm -hmm. this thing. Like, we didn't have the internet, n had never operated a power tool, but never mind, like, measuring and cutting stuff. And I mean, we got some help, obviously, on the slab foundation and engineered plans, but, like, a lot of it we just slapped together based on those plans. We did it ourselves. We got help on the roof. But, like, we were basically just like, okay, we need a stable foundation and four walls and a roof. And we're like, I think we can do that. So instead of couch cushions, we got to build a fort. We used straw bales because it just seemed like natural couch cushions. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? We were like, we we can get this. We can figure that out. We just stacked up straw bales like a fort. No walls inside. No water even. Because uh -huh. we were like, let's just take it a step at a time. We'll figure the water thing out. Even the power old guy just did us a favor. Pop the breakers once in a while because it's like we've changed like the, where the kitchen is and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. you know? But yeah, we're kind of like working backwards for a, a little bit because we just built it with a basic purpose. So now we're moving things around in there. It's kind of like, oh, maybe we need water here, power here, gas leak here, whatever. But I don't know, like that's just kind of like puttering kind of stuff, you know? Like even that sunroom, like we were just like, it was, it was a porch before that like it was just a big long porch and kind of a mudroom pipe mm -hmm. but now the mudroom porch is closed off from the actual porch so that's actually open to the house so that's like where all the heat drains at it first of all <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice room like it's got windows to the to the east and south and that's the sunniest room in the house so it's nice and that's more conventional thing. it's like fort attached on to a fort kind of a thing <laughs> yeah It's not even a thing. Like, uh, this used to be a continuous hill. Like, we got it kind of like leveled out at the front. Got a little bit of a drop off maybe for some kind of visual interest, you know, like some steps kind of thing. It's almost like you can see this little plateau here. Yeah. And then there's that little plateau and then a lower one. There weren't all those aspen cones up there before. We might let those grow up and then that way we, if we cut down some of these ones, we'll have a little bit of privacy on the front yeah. with all those cones there. We did sort of have a garden here before. Now it's just kind of like the same, you know? But I mean, like, honestly, if you look around, like we have a balsam poplar here and here, 
We have birch there and there. There's aspen all lining the fence. These are all uh, balsam poplar and some aspen. There's raspberry bushes. We have choke cherry, like, like the amount of variety that we already have here. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. It fills up with daisies and goldenrod in the summer and asters. It's pretty rich with diversity, you know? Like yeah, we have Saskatoons cool. on the front of the fence too. Because everyone just has lawns. Yeah, well, why would you move in here? Okay, first of all, here's this here, okay? Like, it's gorgeous. Why would I move in here to just raise the property and plant grass and flower beds when we moved here for this? Yeah. You know? Why wouldn't we want to live in this instead of making a lawn with Kentucky bluegrass <laughs> and mowing it? You know what I'm saying? Like, mowing yeah. the lawn. It's so calm. It's so, like, because it's right there also. But don't get me wrong, it's there is a, a little bit of contrast. There's a contrast, that's right. <laughs> I do still have to do maintenance because the grass does kind of get long and you wouldn't be able yeah, to see still your grass. But it was a dry year, so it didn't come up high. But there was a couple times this year we had to get the power trimmer out and take it down because otherwise the whole yard would be like what you see over there. Yeah. You know, and you'd just be like wading through it. So at one point, or a couple points in the summer, I took the power trimmer out, but it just got so dry, especially later in the summer that it didn't get any more than what you see now, you know what I mean? Because I went up here and I did a little bit up there and a little bit here and mostly around here where I'm like, traffic is. But, but then we wanted this to be, have a fort nestled in Aspen Parkland. Kind of like the vibe that we're getting. The backs are real shit show. Like, like I said, it's Vietnam with sweet hazel back there. Like you'd, you'd be like, I'll be back in a week, just hacking away with, like, a machete. Just to, uh, just gonna get to the back fence type of thing. I don't know if you can see the back fence from here. No, but that's The house like is about three quarters of the way back. So yeah. the back fence is really only about, what, 20 yards off the back of the house type of thing. So it's like my fence, just like my parents' backyard. It's like a big residential uh, lot, essentially what it is, you know? Like, it's not... And a huge chunk of property, but she gets a good run around. And yeah, because she still lives in the woods. Well, yeah, so if she wants but to like chase rodents, she can. She has treed raccoons like countless times. She has treed How right over get here. In here. Good question. If they smell food, they can just get in. A bear got that? in here once. What? Like this was between the old dogs that we had and this one. We had no dogs. So we have a compost pile and you know, it just smells like food because people live here. So at one point, I don't know why I heard this. I heard the fence rattling. It's pitch black. Sherry wasn't home. I heard the fence rattling and I'm like, what the hell? Like, is that sound? <laughs> that fence is really rattling. Uh -huh. So I got a headlamp and I shone it and I could see eyes and I could just tell by the way that the eyes were moving mm -hmm. and just like the outline I was like holy shit there is a bear walking up the path like I could see when I shone the light it stopped and then proceeded to walk towards the light I'm like holy shit get back inside close the door I'm calling Sherry I'm like do not come into the yard when you get back because yeah. there is a bear and you will be in the yard at the mercy of a bear type of thing so I'm trying <laughs> to get all of the leaving messages sending texts like crazy right she was out doing whatever and didn't didn't reply right away. At one point, I was yelling and throwing stuff or whatever what I was doing. And at one point, I heard the fence rattling again. And then it just got quiet. So I was pretty confident that there was no bear. So I went uh, uh, out into the yard. 
checked it out, nothing, and then I got a hold of Siri and I said, coast is clear. So that happened. Over here once, Taya had treated a pine martin. Another time, a fisher treated a fisher, which actually was on the other side of the fence, but like when the fisher hears a big dog coming out of barking, it just looks for shelter, like yeah. doesn't know about the fence. So it went way up the tree, and we were getting, shooting pictures like crazy. The pine martin, I could almost reach it. It was just like, because these birch trees were lower, it was just went up as high as it, as it could, and it was stuck. And what else have we had in here? A weasel. Lots of wildlife come through this yard for sure. Skunk, I told you about that with the skunk eating the dog food. When we ah! first moved here, actually, there were like um, elk making like, uh, had a little corridor through here. Elk? Yeah, I know. Crazy, eh? Wow, I can rile my roommate's dog up in three ah! seconds. By doing that, she's usually into that. This? Yeah, yeah. So she's into it. That's it from Patrick. If you want extended content from this episode, don't forget to visit us at throughherepod.com. Thanks for listening to episode 3. Join us next week when we catch up with Eric. He cycled from Tofino, British Columbia to Cape Spear, Newfoundland this summer. While on his way through Riding Mountain, we went for a walk and he spoke with me about how wild it is to cycle across Canada, why he's doing it, and what he's learned so far. If you'd like to hear, see, and experience more from through here, we have extended content on our social media pages, so follow us on Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Spotify at at throughhere. You can catch monthly blog posts on our website at throughherepod.com, and you can join us every week, every Thursday, for new episodes of Through Here. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating if you like what we're doing. We'll see you next Thursday. Have a great weekend, and don't forget to stay curious. Bye.